We're going to resume in John chapter 17. We're in the middle of this profound prayer by our Lord. Uh, the longest recorded prayer uh, in the New Testament, thankfully. And it is a prayer of Jesus. So we get to find out how he prayed, for what he prayed. Uh, and uh, there's just so many deep things here that I definitely need the Lord's help to um, be able to expound it in a proper way. Uh, there should be an outline in your bulletin, and there are printed messages at both exits. You can get one now or later as you like. And uh, all of the messages are on the church website as well. Verse 13 of John 17, Jesus prays, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Well, what in the world is worldliness? That question has spawned confusion, legalism, division among Christians, and frankly, just plain weirdness in some down through church history. Some have thought that the cure for worldliness is isolation from the world, and I've shared with you before one of the most extreme examples was a character by the name of Simeon the Stylite who lived in the 5th century, and to be separate from the world, he erected a platform on top of a pillar that continued to grow higher, and he lived up there for 36 years. People would flock to watch the spectacle of him perched up there. Um, as I've said before, I don't know how he took care of bodily functions and other uh, basic needs, but um, he would preach to them from up there. And uh, it so inspired many that it spawned a movement that lasted for 500 years. There were other pillar dwellers seeking to be separate from the world. In modern times, uh, I'm sure you've encountered, they come through here and have visited our church even, but there are Amish and Mennonite people who are very distinct from the world because of their attire and their lifestyle. Um, many of them think that it's worldly to own or drive cars. I remember as a boy once, we were, I, I remember we were at Forest Lawn Cemetery for some reason in Southern California, and I saw a car that was completely black. The bumper, the, the hubcaps, everything on the car was black, and they were black bumper Mennonites. Uh, they thought it was okay to own a car as long as it was black, 
And as long as you painted all the worldly chrome black, then you were not worldly. And so, again, kind of strange. I also remember as a boy that my parents knew a German Christian woman, and she was thoroughly frustrated with American Christians because they condemned her for drinking beer, which every good German Christian does, But they themselves went to bowling alleys, which in her mind was off the charts as being worldly. Um, My parents grew up in the era when there were the filthy five. And if you did any of them, you were worldly. Uh, Some of you could name them. Smoking, drinking, dancing, going to movies, or playing cards. Any of those were off the limits and... uh, I, I never attended a movie till I was 16, and then my parents gave me the freedom to do so. And these were, this was back in the uh, early 60s, so movies were not what they are now. And my first movie was The Birds with Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> but uh, to this day, I, I have never learned to dance. You can ask my wife. I don't know how to dance. So that was my upbringing. On the other side of the spectrum, there are Christians who have tried to relate to the world to the extent that they are virtually indistinguishable from the world in how they look, how they dress, how they live, even sometimes their behavior and how they speak and so on. And often in their attempts to relate to the world, they end up compromising biblical absolutes. Uh, uh, Apart from our text, one of the main New Testament texts on worldliness is 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. And I'm sure that John was thinking of our text here when he penned these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. And the world is passing away and its lusts. But he who does the will of God, the text should read, abides forever. John doesn't let us love the world just a little bit. He draws a distinct line and says, either you love the world and you don't love God, or you love God and you don't love the world, but you got to take your pick. You can't hold on to both. And so because of that, it's really important that we understand what does the Bible teach about worldliness? What is it? What is it not? The word world, it's the Greek word cosmos, Um, it's a favorite word of John. He uses it 78 times in his gospel, including, I counted nine times here just in our text. Uh, He uses it 24 times in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and again three times in Revelation. It's only used 85 other times in the New Testament, including 47 uses by the Apostle Paul. Originally, the word meant order. Um, Interestingly, our word cosmetics comes from it. I guess cosmetics is an attempt to bring order uh, to something that wasn't orderly before. I don't know. But um, 
it meant order, and it pointed to the universe and creation as God's well-ordered world. Um, it can refer to just the physical world sometimes. John uses it that way to talk about the world, meaning creation. Uh, sometimes it refers to the people of the world. God so loved the world. And in that sense, it's not wrong for us to love the world. Uh, we enjoy the beauty of God's creation We are to love worldly people who need to know the Savior. John also uses the word, however, to refer to the evil organized system under Satan, and it operates through unbelieving people who are opposed to God. Uh, In 1 John 5.19, John says, We know that we that is, believers, are of God. We have been born of God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus spoke in John of the world hating both him and those who are his followers. And the world operates on the basis of ungodly thoughts, ungodly attitudes, ungodly motives, and values, and ungodly goals. And of course, the world is not seeking to promote the glory of God. The world is not seeking to bring their lives under the lordship of God. And so it's in that sense that we must not love the world. Now, in Jesus' prayer here, we learn how we are to relate to the world. Namely, We are to relate to the world as Jesus did. We are to be in the world, but we are to be distinct from it. So let's look first at the fact that we as Christians are to be in the world as Jesus was in it. Three things to point out here. First of all, Jesus was in the world. He was not isolated from worldly people. As you know, in Jesus' day, there were the Pharisees, and they thought that if you wanted to be holy, you had to keep yourself separate from sinners. And so they were quite shocked when Jesus, of all things, picked a notorious sinner, a tax collector by the name of Levi or Matthew, he wrote the first gospel, as one of his apostles, And then Matthew threw a party for all of his notoriously sinful friends. And of all things, Jesus attended that party. Uh, Another time, a Pharisee by the name of Simon invited Jesus to lunch. And a woman of the streets, uh, another notorious sinner, came in uninvited Uh, wept over Jesus' feet, anointed them with an alabaster vial of perfume she had, and dried his feet with her hair. And again, Simon was just shocked. He thought, if this man is a prophet, surely he would not let this woman touch him. Jesus had a different philosophy, however. He said in Luke 5.31, in reference to attending the party at Matthew's house, he said, it is not those who are well, who need a physician, but those who are sick. I mean, that makes sense. What good is a doctor who never sees patients, right? He just keeps his distance. Well, our Lord knew that if he was going to seek and save the lost, he had to be among them. 
And so he was known as a friend of sinners. And if we want to be like Jesus, then we need to be in the world, not isolated from it. Now, that refutes the whole idea of monasticism, joining monasteries. And while we as Protestants probably would shake our fingers and say, for shame, for shame, we would never join a monastery or a nunnery, um, we have our own version of monasticism or isolationism. I sometimes will hear Christian people say um, with a positive note, All of my neighbors or work associates or roommates are Christians. Isn't that great? Yeah, but where's your mission field then? You see, if all you're around is Christians, how are you going to reach the lost? And this is my problem. I work here and there are weeks go by. I don't hardly have any contact with unbelieving people. I, the Lord bless me with being able to be on the uh, editorial advisory board of the Arizona Daily Sun this past year, and at least that way I, I get to have lunch with a bunch of uh, unbelieving people, but I struggle with how to make those contacts naturally. Another problem that we face in the church is that the church often stands on its head what the Apostle Paul commanded in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember the situation in Corinth. There was a man in the church there who was actually having relations with his father's wife, probably not the young man's mother, but his stepmother. And the church was boasting in their tolerance and how they could accept this man in spite of this sin. And Paul was simply horrified. And he realized that they had mistaken something that he had written in a previous letter that we do not possess. And so he, he wrote to them to clarify in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then you'd have to go out of the world. But... Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And I've known Christians who have friendly or they have no contact, no friends among unbelievers. They're isolated. And yet... They freely fellowship with Christians who are in known sin. And even sometimes I've had the situation where the church has had to discipline someone and put them out of the fellowship. And then I hear of Christians who are chummy with those people rather than seeking to uh, rebuke them and bear witness to them. Paul says, don't even associate with such a one. He doesn't mean no contact at all. Because the Lord says that we are to exhort them as an unbeliever to repent. But he means just no friendly chumminess, like there's no problem. And the church has often reversed that. Now, before you take this point and head out the door to befriend worldly people, there is a caution in the Bible. Uh, Later in Corinthians, 
Paul gave this warning, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He said, do not be deceived. And whenever you read those words in the Bible, it means perk up. This is one where you could get faked out. So be careful. He says, bad company corrupts good morals. If you hang out with evil people, it can corrupt you. So the question then is, well, how do we befriend worldly people on the one hand and yet not be corrupted ourselves on the other hand? And that leads to the second point here, the second way Jesus was in the world. Namely, he was in the world with a divine mission. He came into this world with a very clear purpose that he never lost sight of. He told Pilate, "Uh, for this reason, I've come into the world to testify to the truth. And he also came to seek and to save the lost. And John has repeatedly emphasized Jesus' mission with a little word, sent. Uh, We've seen it repeatedly all through John, and it's here in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And the Father had sent his Son into the world on a mission. He came to bear witness of the truth of God, to convict people of their sin, and to die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin for all who believe in him. And he sends us with the same message, the message of salvation with that mission. I believe that Jesus' mission is behind his prayer in verse 19. He says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified, also may be sanctified in truth. The word sanctify means to set something apart for its God-intended use. And in the Old Testament, when they brought a sacrifice to the Lord... They would set it apart, and the priest would examine it and so on before it was offered up to make sure that the sacrifice was without blemish and so on. And so what Jesus is doing here in prayer is he is setting himself apart for his God-intended purpose or mission, namely the cross that is looming uh, above him. His mission was that as a result of his death, he says, his disciples would be sanctified or set apart in truth. Um, Dr. Don Carson explains, Jesus sets himself apart to perform his redemptive work on the cross in order that the beneficiaries of that work might set themselves apart for the work of mission. And so the way To befriend sinners without being corrupted by them is stay focused on your mission. You're not with them to carouse as maybe formerly you did. 1 Peter 4 warns about that. Your, Your mission there is lovingly as God gives you opportunity to bear witness to them of the truth. The truth of coming judgment. The truth that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, naively, we might think, wow, what a great message. Everyone will just love to hear it. But that is not so. And so that leads to the third way that Jesus was in the world. 
Jesus was in the world with a realistic attitude or mindset. Namely, he expected opposition. See, to be in the world and yet to be distinct from the world because, as Jesus says, you hold to the truth is going to incur the world's opposition. The world will love you as long as you're tolerant of sin and you water down the truth and you kind of schmooze with them without saying anything offensive. But the minute you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's wrong, you know, Uh, at that point, uh, they're going to accuse you of being intolerant. Jesus, remember back in John 7, 7, said to his still unbelieving brothers, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me, and here's why. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. See that word evil? The the world doesn't like that word. I found it ironic in our paper recently. A young woman wrote in opposition to our governor signing a bill that restricted abortion. And she said, uh, what the governor did was evil. And I thought, isn't that interesting? She would argue that there are no absolutes, morally, I'm sure. That's the wave of our culture. And yet when the governor signs a bill that protects human life, she says, that's evil, because he violated her um, relative standard. But that happens all the time. You uh, see the world is um, intolerant. Uh, They're tolerant of everything but of those who have absolute standards, and then they become intolerant and uh, say that you're evil. So by all means, be in the world as Jesus was in the world, but don't go in there naively because the minute at work, at school, uh, in your neighborhood, you make the comment, that was wrong, that was evil. Woo, look out, you're going to catch it from uh, this world. So to review, Jesus then was in the world. He was not isolated from worldly people, but Jesus was there with a focused mission. He was there to bear witness to the truth, and he knew that some would receive him, but he also knew that many would not, and the cross was ahead. And in the same way, we are to be in the world as Jesus was, in the world with a mission. He has left us here as light, in the darkness to shine, and we should bear witness with grace and kindness, not in an offensive manner. But even when you relate graciously to sinful people, you're going to catch some flack. They're not all going to just love you for the message. So go with the realistic understanding. Some will respond, some will not. The second way that we are to be in the world, as Jesus was, is that Christians are to be distinct from the world, as Jesus was distinct from it. And two times, at the end of verse 14, and then again in verse 16, Jesus says the same thing. He says, they, the disciples, are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, the first time he says it in verse 14, he's explaining why the world will hate his followers. The second time in verse 16, he's giving the reason why he asked the Father to keep them from the evil one. But that repeated emphasis shows again 
that we are to be distinct from the world just as Jesus himself was. Five things here I want to consider. First of all, we need to keep in mind that to be distinct from the world is the path to genuine joy, not the path to depriving us of having fun. Um, Verse 13, Jesus prays this, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now be honest, when you think of holiness, is joy the first thought that pops in your mind? Often when we think of holiness, we think, oh boy, restrictions. There goes all my fun, you know. We don't think of holy people as joyous people. And that comes from the enemy. It comes from Satan. His lie is, God is trying to keep you from pleasure and fun. That was his pitch with Eve in the garden. You know, God's trying to keep you away from that that will bring you real lasting pleasure and joy. So eat the fruit. And it's still his lie. Now, there is truth in the pitch. Otherwise, we would totally reject it. The truth is this. Sin brings immediate pleasure But the catch is it brings long-term pain and sorrow and destruction, always. On the other hand, holiness sometimes isn't all that much fun or joy immediately, but it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness long-term. And so you've got to have the long-term vision on this. David exalts in Psalm 1611, You will make known to me the path of life. That is the path that ends in life, eternal life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. So here, Jesus prays that we would be distinct or that we would be holy, distinct from the world, so that we might experience the fullness of his joy. And as you think about it, Jesus' joy was the joy of unbroken fellowship with the Father. And that's going to be the joy of heaven, isn't it? That we will be with God, that there will be no sin to cloud our relationship with Him, no sin from others against us to mess life up. We will be in full fellowship with God. But my point here is just, if you want to be distinct from the world, you've got to be on guard against Satan's lie. And don't buy into the lie that sin will bring you what you want. You have to say, no, holiness is the way to joy. A second thing to note is that to be distinct from the world, you have to have a separate or distinct origin. Jesus says, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, Jesus was not of the world because he came from heaven. We are not of the world because, as we saw in John chapter 3... We are born from above, born again by the Holy Spirit. And the new birth sets us apart from the world which does not know God. Through the the new birth, we have a new nature that desires to please God. Uh, We have a new master, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a new power. Within us, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us to help us 
overcome sin. We have a new purpose in life, namely to live to glorify God in all we do and to tell others the good news of his salvation. We have a new identity as the people of God, distinct again from the world, members of Christ's body, the church. And we have a new destiny, namely that we will be with God in heaven throughout eternity. And so the crucial question, and I don't want to assume it's true of everyone here, is this, have you been born again? Have you been born again? You say, how do I know? Well, for one thing, has God changed your heart? When you're born again, there's a change of heart. You desire different things. Yes, you still struggle with sin, but you love God and you want to please him. Uh, the Bible becomes a new book to you. Uh, you love the people of God, whereas before you didn't want anything to do with them. Uh, a lot of changes that God works in your heart. And another way of knowing you're born again is this, is your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, before you're born again, you don't trust in him. You trust in yourself and your own good works. But when you're born again, your trust is completely in Christ and what he did on the cross. Now, apart from the new birth, every attempt to be holy is going to result in one of two things. Legalism and pride. Hey, I'm better than others because I'm a good person. Or asceticism. Asceticism is the way the monastic people go, where you deprive yourself of certain comforts in life, and you think that that's going to make you a holy person. Again, a lot of pride involved in that. Um, neither of those are what we need. What we need is what Jesus told the legalistic Pharisee Nicodemus, John 3, 7. You must be born again. That's the start of being distinct from the world. You're born again. A third thing to note is that to be distinct from the world, you have to develop a separate mindset, and that mindset comes from the Word of God. In verse 14, Jesus prays, notice, I have given them your Word. Again, in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth, and then clarifies, your Word is truth. And then in verse 19, he prays that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. Marcus Rainsford, who wrote a book on this prayer, made this observation. If there is one thing more remarkable than another in the recorded life of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is his con constant endorsement of Scripture and his evident faith in it and his constant use of Scripture. He adds that if anybody was ever qualified to speak on his own apart from Scripture, it was Jesus Christ. I mean, he didn't have to rely on Scripture. He could have come and just spoken. And it was Scripture, but he says Christ never did so. Just to review a few things. In John 5.39, for example, Jesus told the hostile Jewish leaders, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, it is these that testify about me. John 7, 38, he said, The scripture 
has said that the one who believes in him out of his innermost being would flow rivers of living water, which refers to the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 10, he calls the scriptures the word of God, and he asserts that they cannot be broken. When he predicts Judas's betrayal in John 13, 18, he says it's so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Then after his resurrection in Luke 24, 44, he told the disciples this, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and by the way, those are the three divisions of the Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, all of those things must be fulfilled. And then Luke adds in the next verse, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And here... He says the scriptures, the word of God, is the truth. You notice he doesn't say the Bible contains the truth. Or that the Bible uh, is one truth among many. He says your word is truth. In other words, God's word is the eternal standard by which all other things are measured is either being true or false. Whether they align with the word of God. It's the absolute, final, eternal source uh, of truth. And God's truth does not vary time to time, culture to culture, age to age, all of that. All the moral and spiritual truth that's in the word of God is true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to call it. And Jesus says that God's word will sanctify us. It will set us apart from this evil world so that we will be distinct from it. Um, Whether you are worldly or whether you are godly is primarily a matter of how you think. Whether you think biblically or whether you think worldly. And Paul in Romans 12, 2 made this, um, told us how not to be worldly. He said, don't be conformed to this world But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so our minds are transformed as we saturate them with Scripture. And as we do that, we will learn progressively to think biblically about every aspect of life, to run it through the grid of Scripture. So, first of all, then, to be distinct from this world, realize that it's the path to genuine joy, not the path to taking away your fun. Secondly, realize that uh, the distinctiveness of Christians begins when we are born of God. That is the beginning of being set apart to God. And then thirdly, uh, develop a separate mindset that comes from God's Word. Fourthly, To be distinct from this world, live in obedience to God's word. Again, knowing God's word is foundational because you can't obey what you don't know. But I have encountered so many Christians, they can spout the Bible, but they don't obey it. Uh, That happened to me this very week in a situation. Somebody quoting the Bible, but their life is not obeying it. 
And whenever you study the Bible, keep in mind personal application based on correct interpretation is always the goal of Bible study. Every sermon I prepare, I ask this question, so what? In other words, what difference does this text make in my life and what difference should it make in the lives of God's people? Maybe I need to change the way I think. Maybe I need to change my attitude. Is my speech pleasing to God and building up edifying others? Are there sinful habits in my life that I need to destroy? Are there godly character qualities in this text that I need to develop in my life? Um, Do I need to adjust my priorities? Does my schedule this week need to change because of this particular scripture? Uh, Do I need to be a better steward of the resources God has entrusted to me so that I invest them for his kingdom purposes? All of those and many other questions you bombard at the text as you're reading it, seeking to apply it to your own life. Now, becoming an obedient and godly Christian is related to our mission because you won't be effective in witness if your life contradicts what Scripture tells us a Christian should be. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary, says, Personal holiness is not to be an end in itself, but a means to an end, and that end is reaching the lost world for Christ. Or J.C. Ryle puts it this way, Holy living is the great proof of the reality of Christianity. Men may refuse to see the truth of our arguments, but they cannot evade the evidence of a godly life. And so our life has to be the basis for our verbal witness. Uh, Let me give you a couple of practical examples. You're at work. Typically at work, everybody gripes. They complain about the boss. They complain about the wages. They complain about the working conditions. And you're there and you're cheerfully thankful that you have a job. And your attitude is in contrast to the grumblers because you're obeying Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You see the witness there? When you're not grumbling, you're going to stand out like a light in the darkness and you'll be a witness. Or another example, somebody cuts you down. They just make a comment about you that's really a put down of you. Well, in the world, how do you respond? You top them. You put them down, everybody laughs, and you know, you get a good laugh, and the other guy gets put down. How does a Christian respond? 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning 
evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Do you see how counter that is to the world? And when you respond with graciousness or kindness to somebody who puts you down, again, they're going to go, whoa, whoa, what happened? That was different. And you have an opportunity to witness. But the point is, you're distinct from this evil world because you're learning to be obedient to Scripture. A final point. To be distinct from this world, realize that you're in enemy territory. In verse 15, Jesus says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, some translations have keep them from evil, and that's possible, but there is a definite article there in the Greek, and I think it's referring to the devil. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter 5.8, says this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And in the context, Peter's talking about a time of suffering. During a time of suffering or trials or persecution, Satan's out to get believers and ruin your testimony. And so that's when you need to be alert, Peter says, by being, resist him, being firm in your faith. You know, if word came to us this morning uh, that a circus lion had escaped in the south neighborhood of the tracks of Flagstaff, I predict you wouldn't just saunter out the door oblivious to reality. You would go out the door to your car looking around you and making sure that guy wasn't prowling and ready to pounce on you. Well, I have news for you. A lion is loose in Flagstaff this morning, and his name is Satan, the adversary of the brethren. And so be on your guard against the enemy. Now, again, this relates to our mission. Remember in Luke, Jesus said, Oh, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And as a result, Peter denied Jesus three times. He failed in his witness because he was not on guard against the enemy. God is gracious, though, and I say this. If you failed, and I have, we all have in your witness, don't give up because that same man, Peter, was used a couple of months later there on the day of Pentecost to preach boldly in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people got saved. Now, Each of us needs to apply the message this morning according to your need. If you're like me, you need to think about and pray about and be deliberate about how can I be less isolated from this world? Uh, Some of us need to be more in the world, in other words, by just saying, who, how can I have contact with people who need to know the Savior? And maybe that's your application Perhaps there's some of you that you're so much like the world that people would be surprised to find out you're a Christian? Really? And you need to be more distinct from the world. As the Lord leads, apply it. But the point is, 
we should relate to the world even as our Savior did, namely to be in the world and yet to be distinct from it. Father, I pray that you would help each of us to wrestle with the words of our Lord Jesus as to how they apply to us. I pray that for those of us who are too isolated and don't have many non-Christian contacts, you would give us wisdom on how we can do that better, that you would use us as lights in the darkness around us. I would ask, Father, that if some have compromised with the world in their thinking or their behavior, you would give them grace and wisdom to recover and to be even as Peter bold witnesses for you with those who need to know the Savior. I pray if any are here who have not experienced the new birth, that you would open their eyes to their desperate need to repent of the sin of self-righteousness and to recognize that only Christ provides the righteousness we need through his death and resurrection on the cross and that they would believe in him and be saved. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.